0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Pierre de In 2008, the artist Quentin Martins released his controversial film "Episode Three: Enjoy Poverty," filmed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The film portrays the artist as a colonial explorer. Travelling around the Congo's plantations with the naivety of the cartoon character Tintin, Martin's character encounters poverty, hunger and abuse, all the while narrating the way in which these experiences enrich him as a western observer. In a manner now familiar in mainstream critical culture, the film was labelled as problematic. Martin's work and method were critiqued widely by an array of commentators. Some have changed their minds since in light of Martin's further work. Others, and I know this from speaking with an editor of a prominent art magazine, won't come anywhere near it, even 12 years on, for, and I quote, the fear of inadvertently promoting the practice. Critique in Practice, a volume edited by Anthony Downey, brings together a range of responses to Enjoy Poverty, some dating back to 2008, others more recent. It contains essays by the likes of Dan Fox, Anna Dihira Pinto, Artur Majewski, DJ Demas, Jed Charsworth, Ariel Ayesha Azoulay, Jacob Costa, and Gregory Scolette. Because it would be impossible to speak to them all, and because I already interviewed Anthony Downing not long ago, I invited Renza Martens, the subject of the book, and its critiques to join me. Renza, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, hi. Uh, Glad to be here, Pierre. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Pleasure. Renzo, we're going to do something slightly unusual today. You are not the author of the book. You're not its editor. You're not even its contributor. You are the subject, or indeed one of your works is. So we're talking about a volume of writings compiled from critiques, critique being an operative word, we'll need to get to in a moment, critiques, reviews, and accounts of a project of yours, which resulted in a documentary film called Episode Three, Enjoyed Poverty, which was released in 2008. Now, that's a long time ago, but there was good reason why we're talking about this book now. There's a good reason why it took Anthony Downey, the editor of the book, to bring this volume together over 10 years. But let's start even before. What is Enjoy Poverty? How did it come about? How did you find yourself working in the Congo and dealing with the notion of poverty
1: wow <laughs> that's so much to answer to pierre <laughs> um but i first want to say that the book was edited by anthony Downey, oh. indeed and um but it, the whole project was started up earlier by somebody else called els Gouland, who at some point um kind of felt she wasn't the right person anymore and that's when anthony together with lawrence otto um, um took over and then he in the end anthony Really compiled the book, but uh, so it's been a lengthy process mm-hmm. for this book to come about. Um, also because, yeah, there have been shifts in appreciation, uh, not just <laughs> because of other people engaging with it, but also because times obviously change uh, in, in in what the film uh, "Enjoy Poverty" was or was not. So you can you know you can never catch up really. So, um, Enjoy Poverty, yes. So I made the film, it came out in 2008. Um, And why did I make that? What was the reason? The standard thing is that I was, you know, and I imagine you want to delve deeper than that, but that I was really interested in images of disaster, war, poverty, as they are being consumed in and outside of the art world Mm -hmm. uh, by audiences, by... Certainly at that point, we're talking about 2004 when I first started on the film. So this is just slightly after and Wazor's Documenta, for example, uh, and many other shows that really wanted to deal with like the global. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for the first time in mainstream uh, Western European art world, uh, you had all these documentary films or videos or other types of art forms that dealt with, you know, things like precarious labor, situations and and, and indigenous people and and the way, of course, indigenous people have been time and again slaughtered and exploited uh, in the art world, you know, images of that. And I was very um, suspicious, uh, not per se in Documenta, but just at large of um, the roles that these images would then play for by and large, uh, well-to-do white Western art audiences. I was thinking that allowing the viewer, carving out a relatively safe space for viewers to consume, or in other ways, reflect upon um, the lives of other people around the globe, wasn't paying justice to the inequalities in power and agency between, on the one hand, the people being portrayed in those videos or in those artworks, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the people, again, consuming, or in other ways, Uh, Mm -hmm. getting to know those people. So I thought the medium of documentaries, films, installations, art, wasn't properly addressing the discrepancies in relative agency and power between those two parties, people being filmed Mm -hmm. on the one hand, and people consuming or otherwise engaging with those images on the other hand. And I thought that the images, the way I saw them in documentary film festivals, in the press and in art shows like Documenta and many others um, were in a way obscuring more those power relationships than they mm-hmm. were revealing them by and large, by and large. I'm not talking about any individual work, I'm speaking about a, a, a cultural situation. And I felt that this needed to be challenged and understood first and foremost by me, of course, understood. so. Th- that's what I set out to do, really. So uh, it wasn't my first film. I had made a prior a film prior to that, which was the same, really. And this was in two thousand. I went to Chechnya, which at that point was, you know, endured uh, a Russian invasion, not hmm. completely unlike the one happening now in U- in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so it was a a real war situation. And it was very dangerous to go there. People had been abducted and kidnapped, and, 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 you know, it was really far out to go, uh, even if there wouldn't be a war, actually. But now there was a war, and it was really disastrous. Um, So I went there, and, um, and, and I already had made as my singular goal to not paint a picture of the war, but to paint a picture of the power relationships between those stuck in war in various forms and capacities, mm-hmm. on the one hand, and the people um, seeing those images, whether in art or media or journalism or documentary films. So I, I went to Chechnya, so again, this is 2000, in a way as a, what I thought to be, as a representative of the spectator. of, mm-hmm. And I kind of embodied that spectator, that's what I tried not only the spectator, I was also making a film, of course, but um embodying the spectator in the in in war. Yeah. Spectator of war, embody that spectator in war. With the single goal to, again, reveal or understand the power relationships at play. So I did that in Chechnya. And so with Enjoy Poverty, I thought I could up the stakes. I could make it more mm-hmm. I could make it more intelligible. I, I could push the contradictions to such an extent mm. that everybody would see what the contradictions were. <laughs> that that was my goal.
2: Maybe just to summarize for for listeners what what happens in the first film in Chechnya, and I think this is a model that as a kind of behavior as a as a trick, the key to, to both the films would be would be important to understand. But what you do in Chechnya is not so much go and observe people under the conditions of war, not people in suffering. But you make a film about yourself observing them and they are there looking at you and you come up with kind of disarming questions like, what what do you think of me? Do I look handsome? What, what, What does my presence here mean to you people in this refugee camp? I don't remember that film having that much of a circulation at the time. Certainly didn't have that kind of a backlash, didn't have the kind of reception that Enjoy Poverty did. Maybe just it was a way of introducing Enjoy Poverty and some of the plots in, in that film, which, as you say, explodes maybe some of these techniques and takes them to a level where it's very difficult to look away, very difficult to dismiss what you did in Enjoy Poverty as, as an experiment that got out of hand.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's an experiment. I think it was really mm-hmm. well thought through and elaborated. I'm not, you know, it, it's a little bit out of the, outside of the mainstream. But I wouldn't also not classify it as this experimental film. Like we'll see what oh,
2: I I don't think I meant to I don't think okay. I meant it as an experimental film. I mean, right. I'm I'm possibly giving you a get out of jail card to claim later on in our conversation that there was a point at which you didn't quite know how much you took on. Okay. Like,
1: if, well, you, we'll, if you
2: we'll, di- if you we'll did you are either the antichrist of a gen- or a genius. If you didn't <laughs> we can continue. <laughs>
1: Well, I won't take either of those um, as a <laughs> as a marker of myself, but uh, no, I did figure out what to do there before I went. So, what people end up seeing in the film "Enjoy Poverty" is that uh, there's this guy. Um, he's kind of um, in his early thirties. Uh, he's white. He's male. He's Western. He speaks French and English in somewhat of an affected way. He he he, he kind of trots around the disaster zones of Congo. Mm. Um, So the he in this case is me, you know, I was that person. I I encounter situations that that kind of stand in for for the structural inequalities in this world. Uh, So I go, for example, to mining zones where, where there's been constant war for at least 10 years and where the UN then intervenes to, quote unquote, stop the war. But also at the same time offer the, 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 the gold concession to some Western company. So mm-hmm. what you see is that local people, Congolese people, um, fight, uh, militia groups fight over gold. This is disastrous for the population who is, you know, pushed to the brink of extinction in certain areas. And then the UN comes in stops the war and offers the same gold to a foreign company. Mm -hmm. So whilst while bringing peace, it's also another system of extraction. And this is structural. This is all the time. Uh, And of course, it's also what starts wars because uh, some of the militia groups are allied with the foreign gold concession company, others are not. They all Mm -hmm. want their piece of the pie. So it's really a quagmire or I don't know, a shit show of conflicted um, interests, but mm-hmm. one thing is for sure: in the end, rich people run with the profits, and impoverished people have absolutely nothing and die without food in refugee camps. Mm-hmm. So that's in war zones, and then I also visited plantation zones where, uh, you know, companies—it wasn't at the time Unilever, but you know, for all we would know, it could be Unilever or any mm-hmm. other of those big plantation companies that supply the world with food, palm oil mostly, but also cocoa and coffee and rubber for, for airplane tires and Formula One tires. It comes from plantations. Now in these plantations, again, labor conditions are just unimaginable. They're so, mm-hmm. so, so bad. It is, I had no clue how bad it could be. You literally have people working for $3 a month
2: that that's interesting because you, you you're making the film at a time where actually the art world, the media is full of reports of these appalling conditions. The reason the film is so upsetting to watch back back in the West is that you have yourself playing this character, confronting the reality, this horrible reality, and being complicit with it, and being sort of interested in solving that problem, but also knowing that you can solve the problem, that you want to solve the problem.
1: That's exactly right.
2: But that your presence there, your kind of holiday there is still of some value. And it is of value to you more than to the people who are there, who are all believe that you're there to help them. Because, you know, you're white, you turn up, you've got a camera, you're going to ask them questions. And it is indeed heartbreaking at various moments of the film to, yes, to, to see people is. who are completely deprived of the ability to feed themselves and their families treating you like a messiah, only to understand that you know, 10 minutes after the cameras turned off, they are back exactly where they started, just with slightly, slightly broken hopes. So you, you, you were saying a moment ago that you expected to be able to, to do exactly this so i want to i want to ask you a little bit about how you you app the anti so to say from just the depiction of the horrific or horrific state of affairs in which unilever to all intents and purposes and therefore we as shareholders are responsible but we have this fantastic way of second hand engagements in which it's got you know none of this has anything to do with us down the line how did you plan to make the viewer the art world the artist yourself and in fact everyone who ended up having to for a variety of reasons to condemn your film later how did you plan for that level of inescapability in that in that work
1: i had uh, rehearsed it in chechnya mm-hmm. i had rehearsed how to do it i had rehearsed indeed how to break off all exits uh, one of the key exits that is offered by art and journalism and even the economic systems that actively intervene in places like Congo, like aid, for example, that intervene in, in, in those disaster zones, they kind of hinge on the idea that images of poverty will somehow, images taken of you know, desperate situations will somehow create uh, awareness. And the awareness will somehow mm. bring material change down the line somewhere. And I just knew that that wasn't true. It it may well bring some awareness, but it doesn't bring material change. And how did I know that to be true? Because the apparatus that is supposed to bring the material change, like any other industry, keeps 60, 70, in some cases, 90% of all the surplus value that they generate for themselves. So taking images of impoverished people while then taking, leaving the biggest chunk of whatever material change that could bring in terms of donations, or aid, or what have you, for themselves, it effectively turns the whole operation in another another extractive economy. You take images of poor people, and you take whatever revenue, you keep it for yourself for the biggest part. So I knew that the material change that it could potentially bring on the ground was really little compared to uh, what the claims would be. And this is true for humanitarian aid. It's also true for the art world, of course. I knew just from simply observing it that, yes, you can have great, big, almost encyclopedic art exhibitions about the state of the world. In the end, where is this going to bring benefits? It's going to bring benefits mostly to the people who are able to visit those exhibitions and have cappuccinos and this and then discussions, <laughs> PhDs, uh, you know, spin-offs economically, emotional, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And it will bring very little, relatively, to whatever, whomever the people are who are being displayed, of whom people talk, in those mm. images, films, installations, what have you. So a, a simple structural calculation of you know where the benefits will end up of any type of material change that could be brought told me that it's not going to bring material change. Yeah, and and there are many examples in the film. For example, uh, Doctors Without Borders, which you know. It's is kind of one of the most respected humanitarian aid organizations in the world for disaster relief, stuff like that. Uh, even they suffer from all of these things that I just yeah. said. You know, even they who really go out in the woods and treat people, uh, the biggest part of the people are not treated and they will never be in the image. And the people who are yeah. in the image of the photographs of the good deeds of doctors without borders. So the biggest... The biggest ri- Parts of reality on the ground, the people not being helped, or the people being helped, but most of the money that is generated by images of them going to other places than those people being helped. Um most of that remains obscure. In in effect, images of these operations obscure more than they reveal. Yeah. Um And I wanted to show all of that. I wanted to show all of that, but how to do it. So I rehearsed some of the strategies in in Chechnya, employing myself, like casting myself almost, as this indeed white white male artist, um, of course from a rich capitalist country, the Netherlands in my case, going out, being concerned, uh, and in the end making images, Uh, playing the part and in the end going home with some art piece. It's maybe good to say that I didn't only rehearse it myself. I think probably 90% of every single word I utter in Enjoy Poverty is a literal quote from other people. So when I say, for example, one of the most grueling scenes is when I'm in a plantation and, and people say that they want to just, you know, get out of poverty and I explain to them, well, chances that this is going to happen you getting more money are really really slim. Hmm. Uh it's probably not going to happen. Probably in 10 years you'll still be poor like you are now. It's funny to know you know to observe that this is more than 10 years ago and indeed the situations are exactly the same on most plantation. Um so it wasn't exactly like a lie that I was telling you. Hmm. But and then I say well we hope you bring something and this and that and I say no I won't bring anything I'm just enacting the status quo and then they can see that they will try and be happy despite being poor and then i commend them for them and say um that's really great and observing your suffering really makes me into a better human being Hmm. is what i tell them which is gruesome but it is also an exact angelina julie quote when she sent out by UNHCR into, you know, the refugee camps in, I don't know where she went, (laughs) all over the globe. This is exactly what she says to the CNN camera. Maybe she doesn't say it to the people that she just met, but she says it to anybody who has a TV and switch on CNN. Observing these people suffering makes me a better human being or helps me being a better human being. So I thought, oh, if that is what impoverished people have to offer me, aside from all the resources that are being extracted from them, Aside from me being able to make a film about it and then exhibit it in art shows, maybe this is the added value that they really bring me. So if that's true, let's yeah. just, you know, create a level playing field and bring that argument into the, into the dialogue and see how gruesome it is, how indeed it is gruesome to say that. But if it's gruesome, and it's not just gruesome for me, it's also mm. gruesome for Angelina, Julie, and UNHCR apparatus. Yeah.
2: So let's talk about the critiques that you received when the film was circulated in 2008, 2009. I remember seeing it quite early on, and I think like the vast majority of people within the art world at the time, my first reaction was that of revulsion. Um, it, it didn't last long, which is why we're talking now. I've been a, a fanboy for your practice for quite quite a while, but it, it did take a long time for these kind of great suspicions to recede. And if I remember correctly, and also readings through, this is this is why the book is incredibly interesting for anyone interested in the inter- interaction between art, the art world, and politics, and and the image. Why it's so interesting to look at a chronological catalog of opinions and and reviews and and essays written about the work. The critiques go somewhere from, on the one hand, oh, this is all complicit martens is making money. He's making a living of exploiting those people. He he's not as good as Oxfam or Médecins Sans Frontières. So you know, he's just a corrupt artist. So we must therefore pretend that he's not a good artist because you know, God forbid, artists should be like that. You know, so that's 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 kind of one one critique, which was probably enough for for most critics. And the other thing that you already alluded to, which I think plagued me for a little bit, is the the violence of this kind of utterance, you know, this is not going to work for you. And I was thinking at the time I remember about, you know, how we have certain gradations of ethical training in, say, the healthcare system. Like, who is allowed to tell a patient's family that the patient died? You know, a hospital porter mustn't do it. You know, you have to do it following a certain protocol. And what you do, of course, in the film is you break that protocol over and over again, and each time with with slightly more brutality before you, you go into this kind of completely trivializing. But it's okay, you know, you're going to be poor, dance around, let's have a party. And you have this neon sign that says, enjoy poverty, please. And it you know, it kind of daintily flashes, which is your, your kind of you know aesthetic brand for this whole exercise. So given that I've got you the subject of critique, I want to ask you about your experience of living with all of this critique. Some of which has been you know savage for an artist, some of it is still in the book, some of it was much more thought through, but I'm sure it was it wasn't a lot of fun to to deal with it in person so what, what how, how did you treat that like does does the character you you had in the film developed for the film continue then to absorb and kind of have this this critiques wash over him
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, the critiques weren't exactly new to me I, I think some of them. I invented them myself. That's why I do these things in the film. <laughs> yeah. Like if in the film I say, and I'll stick with the same the same line, when I say in the film to impoverished plantation workers, that probably they're gonna remain as poor and the chances that their situation, their circumstances are gonna improve anytime soon are really slim and that I advise them to try and be happy despite being poor, and then I say that their suffering makes me a better human being. You can't invent any of that and then put it in an edit of a well-thought film if you're not aware of how gruesome that is. You, You don't do it by accident. And as I mentioned, almost every line that I utter in the film is a direct quote from from either a media personality, a well-known person, or from World Bank uh, official messages, official policy messages. So I'm not, I'm not inventing anything, really. So I'm not doing anything new, really. And Everything I uttered in the film is part of what I conceive to be the status quo. I'm enacting the status quo. Now, I wouldn't be enacting that status quo if I agreed with it, Then I would just make films about, you know, people in Congo and then, you know, this and that happens. And just a regular, you know, vanilla, if you will, documentary film about suffering in Congo and people helping. Hmm. That is what I would do if I agreed with that status quo. But I don't agree with it. I think they're all lies. And so that's why I bring those lies into the film. That's when I, I don't... When I say lies, I mean they're they're disingenuous. It's disingenuous for Angelina Jolie yeah. to say, your suffering makes me into a better person and say that not to the people whom you ascribe equality to. They are teachers for her, apparently, but she only says it to the CNN cameras. So I thought, if that is true, and if it's true for her, it must be true for me, then I should say that to those people. You are actually giving me a service. You're helping me be a better person. That's the state of the world that we are in. That $100 million net revenue Hollywood star can go to poor people, you know, beset by war and disaster, and then say to the global audiences that these poor people help her while not really giving them anything. That's what she does, right? Hmm. She hasn't said that to any of those people. She hasn't given them the badge like, hey, thank you. You really helped me. So I thought, let's see what that really means. So that's what I do in the film. So to come back to your question, I think the critique is already in the film. At least that's what I've tried to do. Mm -hmm. I try to actively create kind of a, a closed room in which all the exits, the rooms or the escape valves or what have you, they're all closed off. Like there's, it's a portrait of capitalism the film is a portrait of capitalism. And any of our ways out, or our usuals, usual ways out, or we help the poor, or we create awareness, or, or, or we do it because we bring economic, in the end, they're suffering now, but in the end, it'll get better because there will be economic development, or, or we have to have like more care and love and more community. That's what's really gonna help impoverished people. Uh, all of these strategies, I kind of employ them mm-hmm. throughout film, and you see that they're all kind of falling apart. And I think it's kind of a, a, a good, I think it's kind of a, really a good uh, portrait of that status quo. I, I still think so.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, and I think the, the most pertinent question came out from from that work is the, the question of what level of critique, what, what would count as a success in a critique to justify the potential um, side effect, the damage that it causes as it does and And that, that I think but that remains kind of I think there's
1: a question you know? there is a question in that, so when you say the damage mm. it causes, I would like you to situate where that damage is caused
2: i'm I've, I think I can I can probably see where you're going with this, and I'm going to agree that the damage is probably caused both by me and it is to me in acknowledging the as a viewer, acknowledging that I'm deeply uncomfortable with what you're doing in in a certain sense. You know I brought up this example of of having the surgeon tell tell the patient's family that the operation was not successful as opposed yeah. to just an administrator. It frankly doesn't really make any difference if if we are all part of the same system that has caused the operation to go a certain way or have contributed to it. so that damage is at least half to my to my self esteem. But because I was hoping that I'd have a gotcha question for you later, so I'm going sure. to turn this back into you sure. and ask you again. Then, what are, what are the success factors like? Even even if we, even if we ignore, if not ignore the negatives, what would constitute success of that particular mode of critique?
1: So now that I know you have a gotcha question in mind, I'm
2: gonna do it a little bit later.
1: <laughs> it's a little bit oh. later. No, and I'm, I'm sure I, I I have an idea where. Because I made works after this, right? Or I tried,
2: and and
1: and, and we're getting there, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, So I think at the time, I'll I'll take responsibility for what I did at the time and why I wanted to do it. I thought success was simply to make a piece that would be really uh, that would be really frank about the state of the world. It's a portrait Mm. of the world, and of course, success in in a less sophisticated way would be success like oh art shows or praise or this or that. And indeed, you know, you said I was in the doghouse. Well, first of all, prior to making this film I was nowhere. So being in the doghouse was better <laughs> than being nowhere. And and it wasn't too bad because I think again that I'm I kind of owned the owned the critique levered at the film. What was painful at times, especially if it came from people that I respected and admired, is that they would, if, if people would not see that it was on purpose or not see that the biggest part of the damage was inflicted on them as viewers rather than on impoverished people in Congo. Mm-hmm. If people would accuse me of mistreating people in Congo for my own advantage, if I could, th- that was painful, of course. And if I, my one line of defense, which I still have, is it's not me, it's the world. I'm just a stand in for standing practice in the art world and in the economy at large. So please don't accuse me, accuse the system, accuse yourself, whatever. Now, as to your second line of critique that you identif- identified, that while making a piece like this, I was still victimizing impoverished people. Hope and I think that I've inflicted way more damage on viewers than on any of the people that is in the film. The people in the film, if their biggest problem would be that there's a white guy saying that they will (laughs) remain poor, I mean, God, that's kind of common knowledge if you work on a plantation. The funny thing is that a white guy will actually come and tell you that. The more habitual thing is that a white guy comes or a black guy sent by a white guy or a black guy altogether and says, hey, I'm gonna cut your wages because the economy mm. or whatever. That's like the normal thing. That happens every day. Mm. That's how you end up on $3 a month. So a white guy is saying, hey, you're probably gonna remain poor, and you know, it's really sad, but I don't know what we could do. Probably nothing. That's really not gonna inflict so much damage on yeah. the people people who are in those circumstances. They kind of know all of that. They kind of know all of that. Yeah. So I think Mm. what where it inflicts damage is on the self-image of art consumers or art lovers or art, you know, people involved in art who we like to think that we are somehow miraculously a force for better or for good by engaging with people in impoverished areas. That somehow, miraculously, this will bring material benefits for the people who are being portrayed or whose work is being shown or what have you. And sometimes it does, certainly. But yeah. on, an, on an industry level, I don't think it does. And that's what I try to portray.
2: I, I have a feeling that actually a lot of this critique, as, as fierce as it might have been at the time, has not really been absorbed by the art world. And so as a slight aside, I'm going to propose that the most recent edition of Documenta, curated by Rang Rupa, is strange result of the art world failing to recognize what, what it is that you've just, just described, this idea that, that art liberates the world through just shining a light in, onto situations without necessarily following through on any particular material demands and political demands.
1: I would agree with you, uh, but there's one difference with the current documenta, and that is that, uh, at least on from what I understand, uh, on a surface level, it's really a documenta made by groups of artists collectives who representing people who would otherwise be the subject of such art mm. and now from what i understand again on a surface level people are representing themselves and i think that in and of itself could be a big difference
2: that's a maybe a fantastic segue to talk about the work you've made since enjoy poverty since 2008 which maybe responds to some of this description. So after you made the film, you founded co-founded the Institute of Human Activities, which set about trying to open an art centre in a place called Lusanga, formerly known as Leverville, which is a plantation in the middle of the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly owned by Unilever, the Lever Brothers. How did that come about, and how does that connect to the the legacy of enjoyed poverty
1: so the the film kind of struck gold okay but i i thought it doesn't really yeah i thought there was one missing part really and that is the the fact that even this piece and i knew this in advance of course but even this piece in the end is being shown in well to do um you know urban uh, mm-hmm. urban art shows in, in in global cities for well-to-do audiences. Almost invariably, it would be for people who, you know, have the time, the energy, the resources, the education, etc., cetera, et cetera, to deal with art. So I thought, well, this piece too, even if, you know, it supposedly deals with impoverished people in Congo and how they do not benefit from the art world, uh, you know, that's certainly one of the key problems addressed in Enjoy Poverty the film does the same and and i knew that the film would do the same of course you know that's why i made it but still i thought if there is a way out of this scheme then more self reflection will not cut it and so if there is a way out if if art is not only to either please or displease people in the art world if it is to really deal engage with those global circumstances, economic circumstances, more than anything, then I can't suffice with just making critical art. However, good that critique is. Like the prospect of making another enjoy poverty was completely alien to me. And so I, I kind of made this little scheme in my mind. I mean, a schematic analysis of how the art world operates. And I thought, okay, on the one hand, you have these zones of extraction, and certainly Congo. Not Congo Kinshasa, where you know you have very rich people and you have an art scene and you have even museums and galleries and what have you no the zones of extractions are the mines and the plantations uh, and, and and the slums where people who hmm. flee the mines and the plantations end up so these are zones of extraction and they're subject matter. they're zones of extraction in the way that the diamonds and the gold and the cocoa is extracted from it they're also zones of extraction in the way that you can take content from it and then put it in our shows. I thought, unless there is a feedback loop into those zones of extraction economically, not exclusively economically, but also economically, then I don't wanna do it anymore. I'm not gonna make another extractive film, even if it deals with extraction, as I think Enjoy Poverty in the most brutal way that I think is imaginable, for me anyway, that I can imagine, hmm. it deals with extraction, I'm not going to make another piece that is extracted in that way. So now it needs to be regenerative. So I, of course, I, 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 I was in the doghouse of the art world, but nevertheless, I got to uh, travel a little bit and I visited New York for the first time in my life. And I saw, you know, uh, flux opening shop and I, and, and I saw all my heroes, people that I had, whose articles I had uh, read. Uh, in e-flux and in other magazines and in art forum and, uh, uh and, and I saw, and I saw happening bef- in front of my eyes the, you know, the problematization of, of gentrification in the Lower East Side. So, you know, the, the very common, uh, analysis already from the 1980s that, uh, art pretends to be about social justice and critique and analysis and this and that. But what it does in material terms is just make real estate prices rise. And we all know it's true and we all, you know, we're all stuck, then this and that, and okay. And I thought, well, if that's the way it is, whether we like it or not, if that is the way it is, maybe this can be actively employed. So what I imagined is we can build a reverse gentrification program on one of these plantations to actively use this call it a side effect if you want to, or call it the ultimate goal of art if you want that the fact that it accumulates capital and makes real estate prices go up and create shops and, uh, you know, boutiques and whatever, all of that, we can, rather than dismiss it and close our eyes for it and, you know, we can actively employ it. So that's what I thought. These are simple ideas, I, I concede, concede but uh, I thought let's just no, these, find... These,
2: these are ideas that were, were circulating quite a lot 10 years yeah. ago and even before that, Richard Florida is credited, I think, with creating quite a lot of of you know Western cities regeneration plans with the proposal that creative workforces bring with them prosperity right. just by sheer sheer virtue of being creative.
1: Yes. Um
2: it's it's not like we haven't seen that come to a to a pass in, in the West over the last ten years or so.
1: Yeah, it was employed a lot, but it wasn't mm-hmm. employed. It was looked down upon in the critical art world. Mm. It was employed, of course, like every museum in the West employs you know w- while it's being either founded or financed employs these narratives, but artists the the section of artists that I would like to be part of which is like critical artists arts artists engaged with the position of art in political and economic structures that's the type of art I like mm-hmm. those types of artists very often simply dismiss gentrification dismissed the fact that art would also generate capital. Or only wanted to look at it critically. While, of course, even the shows or the texts or the this and that would be published um, in parts of the world that would be gentrifying fast. Like New mm. York City or, or Berlin, uh, the key example, of course. So I thought, rather than being critical about it, sure, I am critical about it, sure, of course. But let's employ it. It seems to be inevitable. Let's employ it. So that's what I try to do. To try and employ that, so that's when, when yeah, the reverse gentrification program, uh, when I when I imagined it like provisionally, and um, and I uh, like the first step was to identify a place where it could potentially happen, um, which is a, a former Unilever palm oil plantation in Congo, um, significant because Unilever was a big funder of the arts, most notably in uh, in London at that time, Tate Modern mm-hmm. in London the Unilever series with Tino Segal and Ayreve and Olafur Eliasson, you know, all of them funded by Unilever to do, Mm -hmm. you know, art. So I thought a Unilever plantation is kind of a perfect place to kind of, you know, jumpstart is regenerative art in which we would use the gentrifying powers of art to reverse what gentrification is, for whom it has significance and where capital would potentially accumulate.
2: I could just sketch out very briefly for listeners who who might be a little bit lost here, just just what exactly happened? Because there is, I think, a slight terminological difference in the kind of Richard Florida idea of gentrification through art, where he would go and move artists into up-and-coming areas and hope that the up-and-comingness would self-realize, whereas what you are proposing, that turning plantation workers and the inhabitants of Lusanga into artists should have the same kind of effect. From a distance, it has had that kind of effect. We are now a year after the release of your second big film in, in the Congo called The White Cube. There is an art center called The White Cube in Losanga, which is in a structure. It has it has a roof. It has did they actually have a roof. I can't quite remember. There was a point at which you were fundraising for a roof in a yeah. in a manner of like a parish church or you know forever collecting for a roof replacement. You work with a collective of artists who are based in, in on the plantation, who exhibit internationally, sometimes alongside you, sometimes under their own name of the organization, sometimes individually. But I think we have to unpack a little bit what, what it is that that is happening here, because this would be lovely to say that, you know, we we taught the man to fish and he was, you know, he was was able to feed himself forever. It's not like he went and brought an art school to the Congo and suddenly there was demand for artistic practices from the Congo, which now brings finances back to to Lusanga.
1: First of all, I'm not a very good fisher myself, so I really could not (laughs) teach anybody to fish. But but luckily, uh, people are really great fishers themselves uh, all over the world and also in Lusanga. Uh, And and, and Congo, of course, you know, the very region where uh, the white cube has been uh, erected. This region has been part of the art world kind of forever in many ways. Like, first of all, uh, the people employed by Unilever on the plantation were not exclusively, but were often of the Pende people who have made kind of the masterpieces for the ages, like the Metropolitan Museum in New York has, you know, these highly prized and uh, heavily insured uh, masterpieces of Pende art uh, in their Mm -hmm. collection. So it's not like people don't know how to make art. They do, Mm -hmm. and they have been doing so forever. So that's one thing. Uh, Another way in which uh, the people in Lusanga have been uh, actively involved in the art world is that they financed art exhibitions and museums, most notably in the UK, through their labor. Involuntarily, they co-produced the Unilever series. They co-produced Ai mm-hmm. Weiwei's uh, work. They co-produced mm-hmm. Louise Bourgeois' mm-hmm. work. They co-produced Bruce Nauman's work. Uh, they, they're, they're in a way stakeholders in of all of these artistic careers of some of the biggest artists of the 20th century. Yeah, they're 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 definitely part of the art world uh, in that way also. So it's not. It's just my point. Like I needed to teach anybody anything about art. I did not. So the only intervention I think I I needed to make was say, well, it's quite simple, there's really nothing to it. If art is able to accumulate capital in places like New York or Berlin or what have you, if art is interested in critical views on the global economy, of course it is. You know, that's kind of the bread and butter of main art shows over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And if also there's a there's the need that I feel myself, but we all feel it, that the subjects of critical art should be the ones making the art and not simply the subjects, mm-hmm. Should be allowed to be the voices that speak. If that is also true, and I, I think it is true. And if, on the other hand, these are all the possibilities that I paint. If, on the other hand, let's talk a little bit about the impossibilities. These are vast zones in central Congo where there has never, ever been a curator Like no curator ever came to Lusanga or any of the other Unilever plantations to ask, hey, we're going to make a critical art show about the global economy and we want the people who are part of, let's say, the extraction zones to be part in our show. Do you maybe make art? Zero. Like nobody ever came to those plantations that has hundreds of thousands of people, many of them extremely talented and some of them with real I wouldn't say careers, but practices, artistic practices. No. Zero, zero, zero. So that it seems like a, a, a very easy uh, a thing to put two and two together and say, well, let's build an art center here. You know, all the incentives are there, the possibilities are there, and apparently nobody so far that I know of uh, did it. So there's like an open field.
2: We we were at a moment where, where two different things are coming together, Renzo, and so, and so, so one... And as much as enjoy poverty um, was was critiqued widely, I think what you're doing now is receiving quite a lot of warm reception in the art world. I don't know whether whether the white cube the film has circulated particularly widely, but the the works that we're talking about, the the sculpture works in particular, made by the artist and on the, on the plantation, the artist in Losanga, have been shown to some acclaim in places like the Sculpture Center in New York. Uh, one of the times we saw each other was when your practice, but through that, their practice was nominated for the Artist Mundy Prize in, in Wales and Cardiff. So I think there is a recognition in the art world that there was a need to go beyond the representation, the first thing you, you, crit- you critiqued. But I want to ask whether you feel that the extractivist model that you were critiquing originally is not still present in the practice as it is now. So I think the technicality that I'm interested in first is really to try to understand the flow of capital. So under your your classical gentrification model, a locality invests itself in opening an art centre and things. Eventually, the tourists, the artists are going to come. This is all going to be great. But I think it would be a little bit disingenuous to to think that that's exactly what happened in Lusanga, No, like I received a newsletter from the organization, the Institute of Human Activities, the other day, mm. and the number of funders' credits at the bottom of the email is is, is like five lines long. Mm. So I'm not necessarily interested in testing Richard Flores' thesis because he's wrote back on it himself since mm. since the first, his first quiz came out. Yeah. But I'm interested in thinking about how. Western capital continues to be involved in producing the capital infrastructure, the museum, the you know, the White Cube in Lusanga, as it was in producing all the capital infrastructure of the plantation. Mm. So I'm very I'm trying to to, to kind of pussyfoot around the question of whether what you're doing isn't exactly the same under certain conditions. Is is there a way in which the same kind of extractivist um nature of western capital isn't just now performing under under different guys so it used to be a plantation now it's an art factory i think that's a question that that, that mustn't be ignored
1: mm. no it's a good question but i i can be very straight in my answer the answer is no
2: and <laughs> i've expected that
1: yes well good um so first of all the, the funding uh, the, the five lines of funding that you saw. Um, Yes, of course, there's a lot of funding. I mean, there's not enough funding. I think we need much, much, much more funding. Um, But sure, there has been some funding to build a museum, uh, to set up infrastructure, and most of that money comes from the West. And I think it's normal. Um, Mm -hmm. I think most museums are built with funding. I don't know how else it's done. Sometimes communities, there are some examples, build their own museum and finance everything themselves but it seems that the people in Lusanga and the other Unilever plantation in Congo already did that part they funded the Lady Lever gallery in Liverpool you know brick by brick that's been paid for by Mm -hmm. uh, the extraction Mm -hmm. of capital from plantations in Congo and of course uh, Liverpool workers as well but they had their share they had the sunlight, it's pretty, they had an arts program there, you know, that kind of seemed to have evened out a tiny bit. But in Congo, definitely, um, the people have already paid their fair share of financing museums, not just the Lady Lever Gallery, the Leverhulme Trust, right? Many UK academics are, you know, uh, indebted to the Leverhulme Trust, and therefore, to plantation workers in Congo. So I think they pay their fair share. Uh, and, of course, Tate Modern, the Unilever series, I mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. paid for by plantation workers in Congo. So I think now that there is this idea, and I brought it up, that a museum should be built on that very site, on that very site of extraction, I think it would be really disingenuous to say, well, after you've paid for Tate Modern and the Lady Lever Gallery and the Levering Trust, now, now you're also going to pay for your own little museum on the plantation. So no the money needs to come from the West. Of course, it needs to come from the West. And so I I do what I can, and it's not enough, but I try to make sure that money comes. And it's a very modest museum. Like it's like, it's not, it doesn't even have like two stories or something. It's a modest museum. It's state of the art, but it's modest um, in its size. And every museum like uh, Tate Modern or any other museum is built by patrons, benefactors, some government subsidy, a nice mix of all of that. Uh, It's not paid for by the people who come in and pay a ticket, or sometimes it's free, so you don't pay a Mm -hmm. ticket. So they don't pay for the museum, it's it's paid by by money that comes from either individual, private individuals who are rich, or from democratically organized societies. So in this case, it comes from both.
2: Just to make it clear, Renz, that's not actually the core of my critique, that, I'm more interested... No, no, then, interested, that was just right?
1: the first part. I wanted yeah. to... You, <laughs> you made a big point about the five lines, so I wanted to first speak <laughs> about that. And and I think it builds up to your larger argument that this would be extractive, that now first there was an extractive plantation, and now there's an extractive art factory, as you called it. Um, so there is an art practice. I don't think it's extractive. I think the contrary is true the money that comes in from the sales or sometimes production budgets for art goes to the community. It doesn't go to me. I take 0% Mm -hmm. of that as I should. I'm not saying it's great that I don't take any percentage. Of course I take, I don't take any percentage and of course I don't. And so I don't. So the money goes to the community and the community uses it, first of all, to better their own life standards and, and, and second to buy land, land. And of course, belongs to them in the first place. They shouldn't have to buy it, but political, economic, military reality in Congo is such that if you don't buy it, you won't survive. So if you want it back, you will need to buy it. Okay, so we buy it. We here being CATPC, the the cooperative of uh, artists, plantation workers in Lusanga. So if there is any extraction, it is also reversed. The money goes back to the community, Typically, a plantation tries to get money from, for example, Lusanga and bring it to London. Here, money is brought from, for example, London and brought back to Lusanga. And, but I think it's even deeper than that. Um, I I think it's even to some minor degree, a kind of way to get outside of any extractivist logic. Because as soon as people own their own land, which they now do, um you can build your own society to some minor degree it's not mm-hmm. all of the former unilever plantations maybe that will come one day but for now it's just like i don't know 200 acres or 300 acres or something to that effect they're constantly buying on which uh, the community plants trees and uh, provides which provides food security and uh, uh, al- allows them to no longer cut the last remaining virgin forests to have fertile land and timber etc etc so i think what it does is that through of course employing or taking a tiny stake in this art apparatus extracting money from it to with that money builds a world that can to some minor degree be free of that extractivist logic
2: okay I'm not going to apologize for phrasing my question clumsily and pushing you into to delivering this fantastic defense of the project. I do not wish to question the the actual movements of, of mm. finance in your particular project. And as much as there's only hope for the world, it, it does come from this kind of you know traditional mode of decolonization where communities can be rendered autonomous from the um, systems of economic exploitations. But I think within all of this, what really still intrigues me is mm. the limit of what it is that you're trying to do. And to, to take it away from maybe your individual project, it strikes me that the question of whether the art world, not art per se, but the art world as a fundamental capitalist enterprise can be anything other than extractivist. That is the question that I think we we, we might have to think about. If we as you have on points proposed the model that you have developed here could be scaled now the things that have become really interesting is to to see how you've moved from the doghouse into this kind of decolonization Actually, no, I'm not going to start describing you with the superlatives, which you, you might not even want, but you you won't have escaped you that over the last couple of years, the art world is hot on restitution and hot on decolonization, as mm-hmm. a lot of liberal disciplines and liberal institutions mm-hmm. are. You've, you've also started a project with the, the Congolese artist, which is trying to ride on that, and I think in incredibly clever ways. But I I wonder whether there isn't a... Very difficult point of dependency in the fact that it's fashionable for the art world to at the moment to think of itself as not racist, as Mm -hmm. somehow being inclined to give away the looted artifacts of of one nation after another. I mean, there are millions of of examples if we would account for them properly. Um, And for me, the fact that I'm asking you this question, the fact that I feel free to ask you this question comes from a scene in your latest film, White Cube. Um, there is a bunch of scenes where you're talking to camera explaining the project, and there's a stack of books in one of those shots. And in one of them, the book we're talking about now, the, the, the Critique in Practice volume, is lying on top of underneath Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. And I don't think that any of our listeners who have heard me before need to be told that I think that's, you know that's essentially... Race woo woo designed to make make everything worse while making liberals feel a little bit better about themselves temporarily. You don't have to say anything about the book or Robin DiAngelo, but the fact that we are in a kind of trend which I really have to be suspicious of. It I really don't see how a capital market like the art world does not, in the end, find a way of extracting resources from those who. Can least part with them. That's that's the meta question essentially.
1: No, I agree with the meta question. Um, uh, you you bring up a lot of things, so I'm I'm and I'm happy you bring them up. So first um, on restitution and decolonization, as like indeed main tropes in the art world for you know with with a, with a lot of traction. Um, they of course can be extractive in and of themselves. I know for a fact that people who do well in those exhibitions in the end buy an apartment in a Western global city with revenue. So even if now there are many, finally, black artists, artists of color, women artists, artists of every denomination that are part of the art world, which I think is very good and very important. Sometimes they become the ones that mine the world for content to offer Mm. it to still mostly Western, liberal, well to do audiences. And so one of the initial questions that I try to deal with, even prior to making an enjoy poverty, is who benefits from these analyses, who benefits from the critique, who benefits from decolonization? And I think one of the answers one could give maybe not the only ones, is that mostly white, liberal, well-to-do audiences at this point in history benefit far more from decolonization than people on mines and implantations in Congo, as one other example. I can tell you for a fact that on mines and implantations in Congo, people have never heard of decolonization in the art world, let alone that they have any stake in it. Mm. It's completely sterile to them. I know for a fact that the owners of those plantations are interested in decolonization. They fund art shows about decolonization, but their workers have zero stake in decolonization. So this is all absolutely true. In the mainstream normal Mm. plantations and mines, I will repeat it, the owners, the shareholders of these plantations and mines are very hot on decolonization They fund art shows about decolonization. Their workers on the ground have never heard of decolonization, not from their bosses anyway. I mean, they will discuss it. They know of Lumumba and and the political struggles, and surely they want to decolonize with or without using that term. Of course, everybody wants to be free of oppression. Of course, everybody wants that, to be free of it. But it's not like the move of decolonization that is going through the art world has any impact in those mines on those plantations? It has way more impact in those art shows that are, yeah, offering up decolonization.
2: It does in a sense this is a repetition of the the process that you critique and enjoy poverty? Yeah, you know, the, the ogling yeah. At, at the miseries, just the performance of fixing of liberation. the problem is just yes.
1: yeah. It's the performance of fixing the problem for sure? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's performative to a very, very large degree. But it's very hard to critique Mm. these performances because, you know, who doesn't want to be free? Who wouldn't want to support the opportunity for people who are uh, uh, in in, in utter misery, structural, organized misery, who who would want to stop their process of liberation? I mean, I definitely don't want to do that. Mm. I would want to support it in any way I can. Sure. Absolutely. But... I think the art shows aren't really the ones doing it very often. Why? Not because the art is bad or good or that doesn't even matter, because there is no redistribution. There is nothing mm. that deals with the materiality of it. The art shows are still in castle or in this or in that, and relatively little of the you know, the, the the effects, the positive effects of art is gonna be redistributed to the communities who Desperately want to decolonize themselves. Now, sometimes, I mean, one can have different opinions, and, and and I also fluctuate through them. I cycle through them myself. Maybe the role of art is not to bring material change. Maybe it's just to put it on the agenda so that other people can bring material change. Maybe um, that that's kind of a standard uh, answer. You know, it's about keeping that keeping those mm-hmm. thoughts alive, about putting them in the limelight. Uh, maybe. After having seen a decolonial show, people at the World Bank will also decide to decolonize, or companies like Unilever, after they've done a lot of advertisements saying that they are um, that they are an equal opportunity employer and are against racism. Maybe they will decide that people that worked for them forever on plantation in Congo also deserve a pension. Maybe one that day will come. It hasn't come yet, but maybe it will come, and maybe only that is the role of art who knows um i don't have any other tool than art like i'm not also a banker or i'm not also uh, a lawyer or also a politician my only tool is art and i like to take it really seriously um as good as i can uh and so i think within what art can do certainly money is involved certainly capital is involved certainly um different types of agency are involved so again why not employ them in the best way possible so yes i share some of your suspicion towards the tight embrace of Mm. western art audiences of decolonization it doesn't cost them so much to decolonize unless it will also pay those pensions of those plantation workers on my uh, on plantations in congo then it will cost something. Of course, that's where we need to get at. I want to get at that point. Uh, The pensions need to be paid. The minimum wage needs to be established there. Then we will have decolonization. Of course, not before that time. Mm. Now, there are some art practices that push for that. Um, And I I like to think that I'm part of one of those. Um, Now, I don't think this project is as well regarded in these decolonial circles, as you may like to imagine. Uh, I think the, I mean, I would love uh, CATPC's work uh, to be everywhere because, you know, it would be great. It would generate more money, more land could be bought, pensions could be paid, for example. But so it's way, way, way smaller than than I would like it to be. And I think one of the reasons why it's made smaller is that people within that section of the art world look at it with suspicion still of course that's yeah. legacy of enjoy poverty i created it myself you know i can't blame anybody uh, but they look at it with suspicion because because it doesn't only point at the solution the problems are also pointed yeah. out uh, the fact that the the first batch of sculptures by catpc was reproduced they were originally made in clay in like earth from the plantation but they were reproduced in cardiff in sculpture center and elsewhere in in cocoa and palm fat, in chocolate, if you will, from the plantation. So obviously that points at a problem. Chocolate is a consumer article that you can find in any uh, in any uh, cappuccino bar next to the next to the museum, or in any department store, or we consume it. Some of us, at least, consume it on a daily basis. And those people do not get pensions, right? Uh, the people working on these plantations do not get pensions. So by age sixty-five, if you're kicked out of your Of the plantation because you can't work anymore, you'll, you know, you'll either die of hunger or your children Mm. take care of you. So, anyway, so the, the thing points at the problem, I think. Even building a white cube on a plantation is regarded by some as a provocation and not a provocation in a good way. Like, oh, it's great that finally there's also a white cube on the plantation that funded Tate Modern. You know, that would be good. But people see it as a bad thing. Like, why would you want to build a white cube, which is white and which is Western and which is modernist? Why would you want to bring that signifier of this extractive murderous apparatus to a plantation? You know, isn't that colonial rather than decolonial? And why is there a white man involved? You know, me, Renzo. Um, You know, can we take it seriously, really? Even the article you mentioned in The New Yorker asks all those questions. There's a fair amount of suspicion, even in that article. It's great that it's in The New Yorker. It's extremely well-written, but it's suspicious also. And I think the suspicion is really because it doesn't carve out, I think the project does not carve out a safe space for Western liberal art lovers. It does that to some degree, and we depend on it to some degree. Otherwise, we will. We should, it will never be shown. It will never be funded. It will die of hunger, the program, and the people in yeah. it. But it also continuously points back at the problem. Why is there only one white? Why is there now a white cube? Why is there only one? Why wasn't there one before? Um, why are white cubes only in rich cities and never on the plantations that feed the rich cities? These are structural and important questions that the project asks.
2: Yeah, I think that, that's, that's a... That's a concerted defence of, of the project. <laughs> Thank you, Renzo. I want to ask you, given those, all those difficulties, on whom and which kind of a- activity the owners, for its continued success or feasible replication, which is one of the things you were proposing over the years, where, where the owners lie. So to a certain extent, the question is about aesthetics and about you know where, where is where is art, where is the NGO, where are you an artist, where are you an... A charity administrator and i think that's quite easy to dispense with that particular one there's also an aspect in which the the artist from sierra the the collective who whose work is trailed i imagine mostly in the west as opposed to within the congo and that's where the money comes from for the restitution for acquisitions of land the the question of the quality of the work, in the broadest sense of that that word, that, that word is, is is relevant. Is is it on them to keep on producing work that will be exciting enough for Sculpture Center New York and its likes for the next ten years, or is it something that the NGO has to keep on doing, or is maybe the aesthetic aspect, frankly, kind of irrelevant because there's a there's an underlying tone. Maybe you know, maybe the Robin DiAngelo dig. Which I have ascribe to you is what actually drives the success. Maybe the aesthetics is in the liberal guilt that is, for the moment, driving all the decolonizing forces. And I kind, I kind of what I what I'm asking underneath it, the, this all is like: should it all go wrong? And that's my that's my kind of nihilism. You know, liberalism liberalism does make you a nihilist in the end. That's possibly why I liked your early work. Should it all go wrong? Who gets left with what? I'm, I'm almost, almost channeling an art student who I remember asking you a version of this question at a really long time ago, a, a conversation in fana Bay Museum. Like, do, do your colleagues on the plantation at, at the least, get left with beautiful art that makes them feel better about themselves, as, as we are told at art school, art was supposed to do for us all.
1: Yeah. So. First of all, there is no NGO. You you keep on mentioning a NGO. Uh, I don't know which NGO you refer to. There is no NGO here. The Human Activities or the IHA is, is not an NGO where an organization, I uh, founded it together with the help of others. I founded it to create uh, a level playing field to make sure that critique on economic inequality could uh, bypass that inequality in one way or the other. And we work together with CATPC, which is a cooperative, the mm. Congolese Plantation Workers Art League. So none of these two organizations are NGOs. Mm.
2: Well, I think I was using this term in a slightly more metaphorical sense, but I, I marked the
1: distinction. So back to the aesthetic question. Oh, yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the possibility that really the main driver of the project is this white liberal guilt. That that produces the work really or the aesthetics or and that's that's that that is the key component and maybe also the only component that is needed to drive the project forward i don't know one of the the reviews i like most uh in 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 the entirety of my uh life as an artist was written by uh holland cotter so this is holland cotter in the new york times uh referring again to the exhibition of CHPC at Sculpture Center this 2017. In short, the project, de-exoticizing and re-exoticizing, is politically problematic on almost every level, and it's fascinating for that reason. It raises questions about imbalances of power based on race and class that are at the very foundation of modern Western culture, but that our big museums have resolutely refused to address, never mind to answer. Now why i like the quote so much is that it to me anyway it pays justice to the project not only bringing up those questions like you know it's colonialism there's racism there's violence there's capitalism basically uh, and and it, and it's terrible it does that you know i think the show in sculpture center did all of that and and that would be enough for it to be a good decolonial show but it also on top of that um made it really difficult to accept at face value for many western audiences as proper decolonial critique because it situates mm-hmm. the critique in the here and and in the now and in present production chains so the colonial and the critique of the colonial is not situated in something in the past, or something situated outside of the realm of daily consumption. On the contrary, it does also do it in the past, and also situates the critique, the realities and the critique thereof, in the here and the now, in the daily consumption of, of chocolate, but then also in the daily consumption, if you will, of critique of the colonial realities. Now, I think that happens, in that exhibition and sculpture center and part of why it happens is that the sculptures that are about histories on the plantation and how horrible they are and they are about future visions of the plantation and what could happen if things go better but all of this reproduced in chocolate which again is a product that we consume daily from plantations like these and others so one way of reading it i'm not saying it's the only one is that it is all a consumption article, but you know what? If we consume enough of it, people will be able to buy back their land and plant forests. <laughs> so it's a, little bit, it, it's, it's a little bit more multidimensional than simply saying that the colony was a bad thing. Of course it was a bad thing, that capitalism is bad. Yes, of course it's bad, at least for many, many, many people, it's terrible. And for some people it's not so terrible, but for many people it's really terrible. And that you should should make shows about it. Yes, you should make shows about it. And that these shows should maybe like shape opinion. Sure, they should shape opinion. And that maybe some of them can be redistributed so that people, the subject of those shows can actually also benefit from the world decolonizing. Yes, that too. But then on top of that, that this is also part of a consumption pattern. And that the question is, who benefits from that consumption pattern? So I think, in a different way than in Enjoy Poverty, obviously, because I didn't make the sculptures; uh, other people did. But I think some of the of the same multidimensional uh, readings are present in the work, which makes it really hard. You know, the Holland Cotter review I like because he mm. acknowledges and points and validates these different aspects to uh, to those sculptures. But quite a few people do not do that. You know, we were not invited for the Venice Biennial and also CATPC was not invited for Documenta. So, mm-hmm. because it doesn't quite does the thing that it needs to be doing in this present moment. And I think for good reason, we yeah. we avoid, or I mean, I don't know, uh, we don't avoid it. I would have loved the sculpture to be part of Documenta, but they would have done something slightly differently than some of the other works that I saw there. Yeah.
2: Well, Renzo, I'm thank you so much for your time. I'm just going to maybe take one minute to Hopefully plug your latest project. You very recently with Sarto Basset released an NFT rendering of a sculpture of a Belgian officer called Ballot, who I think was killed in an uprising at the plantation in 1931. Yes. The sculpture itself was made made around that time and is housed in the Virginia Museum of Art in Richmond. And as restitution drives go. This particular one has been completely unsuccessful in as much as the museum is not even entertaining the idea of loaning the work to the museum, which is now ready to house it and to showcase it. Um, so in, in what to me looks like a perfect use of the NFT, um, the one could use of the NFT and a perfect bit of retaliation, and, and also the Institute have released an NFT in which our listeners for i think a reasonably affordable price can go and own an edition of this sculpture and also some original artwork by one of the artists so i'm going to put a link in the show notes to this also to many of the works and um and events that we looked at enjoy poverty the film is also available to watch online Lorenzo, i'm going to be following what you're doing next thank you so much
1: thank you thank you so much
2: critique in practice, Renzo Martin's episode 3, Enjoy Poverty, edited by Anthony Downey, is published by Sternberg. Information about the ballot NFT, as well as the film Enjoy Poverty, are available at humanactivities.org. I'm Pierre Delancet, and the other was Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.